0: Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The cartoonist Charles Schultz would have been a hundred this year, but his most famous creation, the comic strip Peanuts, of course carries on. We consider how Peanuts serves as a seemingly innocuous window into brutal human nature. And because it's that time of year, we take a look at A Charlie Brown Christmas, the first time Peanuts characters moved off the page and onto screens. But we also take a listen... Once they made that jump, they needed a soundtrack too.
2: First up, though,
1: in Venezuela today, it's the end of a kind of parallel universe.
0: La propuesta sería la eliminación.
1: The country's opposition parties voted strongly in favor of elimination of the entire interim government. That would put an end to the run of self-appointed interim president, Juan Guaidó. Back in 2019, Nicolás Maduro claimed to have won a general election and was duly sworn in. But that election was rigged. Mr. Maduro pressed ahead, going through the motions of inauguration.
0: For many
1: in Venezuela and around the world, though, the opposition leader, Mr. Guaidó, was widely seen as the country's rightful leader. Protests abounded. Internal and international pressure looked for a while like Mr. Maduro might be toppled if there were any disloyalty in the country's army. Like many countries, America considered Mr. Guaido the president and laid on harsh oil sanction. Today, Treasury took action against Venezuela's state-owned
3: oil company, PDVSA. To help prevent
1: the further Those democracy. sanctions piled on to years-long economic mismanagement, hyperinflation of more than a million percent pressured Mr. Maduro even more. But nothing happened, and in the meantime, the world has moved on. America lifted some of those sanctions last month. So the country's opposition parties are doing something about it, voting to oust Mr. Guaido and his parallel government that's been managing Venezuela's foreign assets. And all told, Mr. Maduro, by simply staying put, is coming in from the cold.
3: Well, Maduro potentially is going to be the beneficiary of a sort of geopolitical accident.
1: Stephen Gibbs writes about Venezuela for The Economist.
3: The combination of a leftward shift in Latin American politics and also the war in Ukraine means that here he is sitting in a slightly more friendly environment and also sitting on a whole lot of oil which makes the opportunity of Venezuela more attractive suddenly.
1: Well, let's take a step back to the last time we spoke with you and and the position that Mr. Maduro found himself in then.
3: Well, if we go back three years to 2019, things were very different and very difficult for President Maduro. There was a serious movement uh, led by the opposition, backed by millions of Venezuelans on the street to try and oust him from power. This was supported by the United States, most of the major economies in Latin America, most nations of the Western world, who recognized the opposition leader Juan Guaido, who was the head of the National Assembly, as the rightful president of Venezuela. The reason they did that is that in 2018, Maduro had rigged an election. So he was sitting there in power in 2019, with a whole lot of the world saying he was doing so illegally, and there was this attempt to bring about a sort of velvet revolution, a peaceful revolution, where the army would suddenly go behind Juan Guaido, and Maduro would be off on a plane somewhere, and that would be that. Now, of course, none of that happened. There were protests, there was a lot of support for Juan Guaido, but the key institutions of Venezuela, particularly the army, stuck with Maduro. So, the plan failed, and now Maduro is in a very different situation. So what has changed about his his position more recently? Well, several things. One is, in Latin America, there has been a leftward shift in politics. That's made the whole region much more welcoming to President Maduro. Also, we've got the war in Ukraine, which has caused serious problems to the world's energy supplies, and here is Venezuela with 18% of the world's proven oil reserves, more than any other country. And so that makes Venezuela, even if it's led by President Maduro, a more attractive place for uh, various world governments. So it's been a geopolitical shift, a sort of one that Maduro really had nothing to do with, but suddenly makes him... A more interesting person to talk to, and there's more of a desire amongst many countries to make him a little less of a pariah. Of course, also the other key shift is there's been a change since 2019 in the US administration. You have uh, President Biden rather than President Trump, who took a sort of maximalist approach towards Venezuela, and the first priority was get rid of President Maduro. President Biden has taken a different approach, and because of this geopolitical shift, it's easier for him to do so. So what does that new openness to Venezuela mean in practical terms? So what we've seen this year is actually two visits by envoys from the Biden administration, and really the deal that the Biden administration and the international community has been offering to Maduro is if you talk to the opposition then we can do various things we can start getting some of those US sanctions lifted the key one being a major sanctioning of PDVSA the Venezuelan state oil company and that's what happened over the weekend of the 26th of November the opposition and the Maduro side met in Mexico and simultaneously the US government said right we will start lifting sanctions. And what they did is they've allowed Chevron, the US oil giant, to start pumping oil and exporting it to the US. Chevron has been in Venezuela throughout all of this. But since those sanctions were imposed in 2019, it's been really something of a sort of ghost operation, just ticking over, waiting for those sanctions to be lifted. And that's what we've seen happen now.
1: So notwithstanding the shift to left-leaning governments in the region, what's really saving Venezuela, Mr. Maduro himself, then, is that it's sitting on this big pile of oil.
3: Oh, yes. I think that's a big lure for people to talk to him. But we have to sort of put a caveat on this. When the Chevron announcement came, you know, there was a feeling this was a huge geopolitical shift. The sort of war was over with Venezuela Maduro, had got away with it. U.S. and world markets were going to get a whole lot of oil from Venezuela. It doesn't really work like that because you have to understand that Pera the state oil company, is extremely run down. We're looking at decades of underinvestment and corruption and various other problems. So it's a sort of shadow of its former self. And even if you get a whole lot of investment, you know, the way the oil industry works, that doesn't mean you suddenly get a whole lot of oil. The experts here say that with the Chevron arrangement and with possible substantial sort of, release on other foreign companies, the production of Venezuela could go up by sort of 0.3 or 0.4%, or the equivalent of 0.3 or 0.4% of global oil production. So it's a total drop in the ocean.
1: But the, the, the sort of negotiations you've described have linked that oil, however available it is, to him speaking to the opposition. Well, what are the political implications of, of all of this?
3: Yes, yeah, so well, this is broadly good for Maduro. Because the world wants to talk to him again, he's been taking massive advantage of that. You have to bear in mind he's been a pariah since 2019 or in many ways. People have avoided talking to him. Uh, with this sort of deal being a potential opportunity... For example, Maduro went to the UN climate change conference in Egypt, and he spoke to President Macron of France. France doesn't officially recognize President Maduro as the legitimate leader of Venezuela, but there he was having a conversation. And now what Maduro has given in return is sitting down in these talks in Mexico. So the Biden administration can say, you know, we're having to deal a bit with Maduro, but the reason we're doing so is because he's talking to the opposition and also one of our major U.S. oil companies. It's going to benefit. It's going to have a little bit of its debt paid off by these arrangements. So it's being sold as a everyone wins arrangement.
1: So Mr. Maduro comes in from the cold, at least on, on the world stage. He has the, the, the means now, the motivation to, to revitalize the oil industry. And so far, all he's had to promise then is to sit down and have some talks with the opposition.
3: Well, that's certainly the way some people see it. And they view, you know, whenever Maduro sits down with the opposition, all he's doing is playing for time. He's not actually got any plans to give anything up. There is another point of view, and that is that Maduro wants legitimacy. He loves the fact that he went to that conference in Egypt and Macron greeted him. And he wants domestic legitimacy by winning an election that he could declare fair. And it's not totally out of the question That may be possible if he goes for elections in 2024. And in fact, there's some theories here that he might go for quite a lot earlier than that. If he goes for that, it's not totally out of the question he could win. The opposition has as yet failed to unite behind one single leader. The economy here is not as bad as it was in 2019, despite plenty of headwinds. So one possibility is that Maduro really does win this, that in, he goes ahead in 2024, somehow he wins that election, he breathes a sigh of relief, and some people in the outside world might do too. They would much rather deal with someone that they could say was legitimate, had been sort of laundered through an election that they could declare was free and fair, and then carry on. But of course, there are plenty of people here in Venezuela who think that would be a disgraceful end to all this but let's see what happens. Thanks very much for your time, Stephen. My pleasure. Thanks, Jason.
0: Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. In all of
4: mankind's history, there has never been more damage done than by people who thought they were doing the right thing. So says Lucy, after her friend Charlie Brown reveals that he has replaced her little brother Linus's much-nuzzled security blanket.
1: Henry Hitchings
4: writes about culture for The Economist. And it's a quotation that captures the spirit of Peanuts, Charles M. Schultz's long-running cartoon strip. It's a strip in which children, largely free from adult intervention, confront uncomfortable truths. It's very much a child's world. Charles Schultz would have been 100 this year. His comic strip, I think, is remarkable in its probing human nature. I think the thing which really strikes me about Peanuts is it's bleak. And when I was a child, I didn't really tune into that. I couldn't see what was funny about it. Curiously, for a comic strip, I think it's almost not for children. So much about it appeals much more to a mature sensibility. There's a lot in it, for instance, about the pain of unrequited love and the gulf between fantasy and reality. It's a lesson in the elusive nature of happiness, you could say. And it's drawn with this wonderfully decisive simplicity. The characters, with their tiny bodies and their massive heads, look vulnerable. Schultz had a childhood which I tend to think of as being dull. It wasn't grim, it wasn't exactly poverty-stricken, but it was an unexciting childhood in St Paul, Minnesota. He was born in Minneapolis, moved to St Paul when he was very small. And his father was a barber who was, by necessity, a rather social creature. Charles, who was known to his family as Sparky, with a touch of irony, rather reacted against that. He was a timid person who didn't excel at anything at school, apart from drawing. And then when he submitted drawings to his high school yearbook, they were rejected. He lived in a Society where people wanted you to be good at practical things, and he was a dreamer. He came up with this strip, Little Folks, which was really about boys and girls and their competitive relationships and the misunderstandings between them. It was a single-panel cartoon. Little Folks, it's fair to say, met with very little reaction, but he was constantly looking for new avenues. And when he pitched to United Feature Syndicate a four-panel strip rather than a one-panel strip, they thought this, with this bit more sense of narrative development in it, was something that could really go somewhere. They weren't keen on the title little folks, so they came up with a different name for it. Why was it called Peanuts? It certainly wasn't Schultz's idea. In fact, he was really offended by the idea. The name derives from what used to be known as the Peanut Gallery in a theatre, the cheapest seats in a vaudeville theatre. Schultz's reaction to this was really just to go, Why? And of course, it ended up being his life's work. And he still, 40 years after the name was foisted on him, bore a grudge about this. It is really quite a disparaging name to be attached to your masterwork. Of the human characters in Peanuts, the most famous is Charlie Brown, who you could say is Charles Schultz's... although really everybody in the strip embodies some characteristic of him and some characteristic of humanity at large. Charlie Brown is a hapless figure who pickles in self-doubt and yet has this remarkable will to succeed. He's always being knocked down and he's always getting up again. Linus, famous for his comfort blanket, his security blanket, is a philosophically-minded, sensitive boy who experiences loneliness and isolation, but comes up with philosophical answers to those problems. Schroeder, child piano prodigy obsessed with Beethoven. There's an occasion when the bust of Beethoven that sits on top of his miniature piano gets smashed and he simply goes to the cupboard, which turns out to be full of busts. That's the level of his obsession. And the point about Trader is that he's isolated by that obsession. One of the most amicable characters is Lucy, Linus's sister. Probably most famous for the fact that she runs what looks like a lemonade stand, but is actually a psychiatric clinic. Uh, although she really only has one remedy, which is to say to the other characters, snap out of it. Of course, Schultz's most famous creation isn't a child, but a dog, Snoopy. Snoopy's a fantasist. He entertains all these dreams which come to nothing. He thinks of himself as a novelist, but he can't attract the interest of a publisher. He frequently imagines being a British wartime flying ace, but he always gets shot down. And yet, he's constantly this sunny, loyal presence... The most extraordinary thing to me about Peanuts is its longevity. The first instalment appeared in October 1950, and it appeared in just seven newspapers. Ultimately, it would grace more than 2,000 newspapers in over 70 countries. Schultz drew 17,898 of these strips the last of which appeared, in fact, the day after he died in February of 2000. So it's a massive body of work. The merchandising of Snoopy, in particular, has insinuated him as a character into lots of places that one could barely believe he's turned up, like in the American Space Programme he became a mascot for. But at the same time, Schultz was a keen student of human nature, and a lot of the... Psychological truths that he accesses in Peanuts are profound. He brought into a mainstream space a lot of quite novel and bold realizations about how we relate to other people, how we relate to ourselves. Under the guise of producing something ostensibly funny, he produced something that's actually psychologically profound.
5: Every family has its own cozy rituals around Christmas.
1: The one thing that sticks out in my memory from Christmases as a kid was that I was allowed to open exactly one present on Christmas Eve. Everything else had to wait for Christmas morning.
3: Well, every Christmas, usually the weekend after Thanksgiving, my family and I will go cut down a tree from a tree farm and then we'll bring it home and spend the weekend decorating.
5: I'm William Warren, and I'm the creative producer of The Intelligence. My family, like many other British families, spend most Christmases watching the animated classic The Snowman. It's the story of a magical snowman who comes to life and takes a child flying across the woodlands, only to melt tragically the next day. Illustrator Raymond Briggs' tale of wonder and loss ...was made our own because we had a really rare VHS version... ...which was introduced by David Bowie as the boy.
1: This attic's full of memories for me. We spent all our summers by the seaside... ...and in winter, at home,
5: by the fire. While the snowman is essential viewing in Britain... ...in other parts of the world, they have their own television-based traditions.
1: We didn't really watch the live-action classics like Miracle on 34th Street or It's a Wonderful Life, but definitely watched the animated stuff, the Charlie Brown Christmas special, and in particular the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer stop-motion animation one.
3: Well, I didn't celebrate Christmas at all until I met Alisa was my wife when I was 25 years old. Watching Charlie Brown Christmas was really my only connection to the holiday. I remember it very fondly. And even now, the soundtrack is still in steady rotation in our house. And my kids and I usually watch it together at least once a season. The
5: 1965 special, A Charlie Brown Christmas, is beloved by many Americans. And it's still broadcast every Christmas. Its appeal is obvious. It's full of charming, simple animation that captures the childhood naivety of anticipating Christmas. But what makes it stand out for me is the music. Music <laughs> Throughout the special, there are soothing, melancholy jazz tracks by the Vince Guaraldi Trio. If you listen to Christmas Time Is Here, for example, it's the ultimate embodiment of what the album represents. It's this sad, lonely jazz that's still warm and still comforting. It's really not what you consider as traditional Christmas music,
2: but it's beautiful. That was a big deal for me because it was a school night. And generally, my parents did not allow me to watch television on school nights. I think it was a Thursday.
5: That's Derek Bang. Few people know more about Peanuts and Vince Guaraldi than he does. And yes, it was a Thursday.
2: I absolutely was enthralled, even at the age of 10. Back in 1965, we all thought things of that nature were one and done. And I feared very strongly that I was never going to be able to hear that music again. I was very happy, as the years subsequently went by, to have been proven wrong.
5: Derek Bang has been a lifelong fan of Peanuts since watching the Christmas special himself. He's a Peanuts historian and has written the definitive biography of Vince Guaraldi. The album opener, O Tannenbaum, or O Christmas Tree, fools you into thinking that this is going to be an ordinary take on Christmas music. But after only a little short introduction, Geraldi's swinging jazz kicks in. The take has the coziness of a warm winter fireplace to it.
2: Up to that point in time, the music for animated specials tended to be very frantic. Think of the musical scores for all of the Looney Tunes cartoons. Deciding to use jazz was also a unique and bold decision.
5: Fans of the Charlie Brown Christmas specials will immediately associate the buoyant track Linus and Lucy as the de facto theme of the franchise. But how on earth did a star of Latin jazz come to score a children's programme? To answer that, we need to find out how Charlie Brown made it to television in the first place.
2: Director-producer Lee Mendelssohn developed a primetime tv special on the man he considered the greatest baseball player of all time willie mays trying to figure out what to do next mendelson suddenly had an inspiration having devoted a show to the greatest baseball player of all time wouldn't it be interesting now to focus on the worst baseball player of all time and who would that be charlie brown of course
5: While many would associate the 1960s with rock music, whether it's the dulcet but fiery folk rock of Bob Dylan or the sex appeal of the Beatles and the British invasion, there was another musical invasion happening. Bossa Nova. Tracks like The Girl from Ipanema by Gilberto and Getz brought cool to cosmopolitan dinner parties. Producer Mendelssohn really wanted to capture that for his animation. The themes of bossa nova really work well with Charlie Brown too. The music's soft sophistication matches the children's extraordinarily adult woes. On a surface level, bossa nova is all about relaxing rhythms, but it's actually undercut by a hidden sadness. The Girl from Ipanema itself is a mellow song that's about intense loneliness. Giraldi, who only the year before had actually covered the track himself, was a perfect fit.
2: But he wasn't the first choice. Mendelssohn wanted jazz, even though Schultz preferred classical music. Mendelssohn first approached Dave Brubeck, who thanked him for the suggestion, but begged off, saying he had too much work. And then one fateful day, as Mendelssohn was driving across the Golden Gate Bridge, he was listening to the local jazz radio station. And what should he hear but cast your fate to the wind? As the saying goes, the rest was history.
5: And history indeed was made. Groudy went on to go and score the documentary. He penned wandering jazz tracks like Oh Good Grief. However, the Charlie Brown documentary itself never actually aired, although Charlie Brown himself was given a second chance to appear on the television. The Coca-Cola Company saw the potential of advertising next to feel-good Christmas TV hits. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, for example, had been a great success after being sponsored by Timex Watches. So the Coca-Cola Company asked Mendelssohn if he could turn around a Charlie Brown Christmas special in time for the holiday. Because they were short on time, much of the music from the documentary was ported over to the Christmas special. But new tracks were added and they had an especially Christmassy feel. Skating is a waltz of joy. You can almost hear the children gliding over the ice as Garaldi whizzes up and down the white notes of the piano. But it wasn't just Garaldi and his trio that made the music special. The child actors had a role to play too.
2: Up to that point in time, characters in animated shows, even if they were children or funny animals, were always voiced by adults. Mendelssohn wanted his kid characters to be voiced by children. Unprecedented. Hark the
5: herald sing! It doesn't get more Christmassy than Hark the herald angels sing, but in this version, it's almost a time capsule. The particular sound of the old microphones. The accents that you don't really hear anymore. The producers had actually hired a child choir, but they were too good at singing. So instead, they decided to get the child choir to blare out the words. And you can hear many of them are singing out of time. But that's where the charm lies. Another track that uses the innocent, angelic children's voices is My Little Drum. The chugging drums are still and anticipatory at the same time. It's really haunting. Groudy kept making music for the shows until his sudden death in 1976. He was just 47.
2: There's no question That Garaldi did not receive the recognition that he deserved, both during his lifetime and during the first couple of decades after he died. There was still this notion, and I think a lot of people still think this today, that you have to be starving in a garret if you're going to be a successful artist. Otherwise, you've sold out.
5: While Geraldi has never received the acclaim that many of the jazz greats do, there's been something of a revival of interest in his music lately. The soundtrack to A Charlie Brown Christmas is actually one of the best-selling jazz albums of all time. Depending on who you ask, it's either behind or ahead of Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. This year, a new super deluxe edition is being released. <laughs> It features sleeve notes from Derek Bang himself and an additional 50 unheard outtakes from five recording sessions. If you listen to alternative takes of tracks like skating, it's fascinating to see how these tracks evolved.
2: It has become an integral part of my life, not only at this time of the year, but all the time. Because thinking of A Charlie Brown Christmas always makes me think of Vince Guaraldi, which always makes me haul out one of his earlier albums. It's kind of like bringing him back to life, isn't it? I take comfort at this point in time in the knowledge that Guaraldi's music is undoubtedly going to outlive a lot of us. That's a magical thought.
5: I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. So, if like Charlie Brown this Christmas, you're feeling blue, I'd highly recommend gathering your family around the television and rediscovering the true meaning of Christmas with Charlie, Garaldi, and the gang.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Chris Impey. Our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Sam Westren, Jad Gill, John Joe Devlin, and Rory Galloway. Our creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Alizé-Jean-Baptiste and Kevin Caners. with extra production help this week from Emily Elias and Alan Haberchak. We'll all see you back here on Monday. Happy Holidays.
4: To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit eiu.com.